So greet you in Jesus' name this morning. Two enjoyed the Sunday school. And I don't know, there's something about Sunday mornings that are just so rejuvenating and energizing. I, I just don't know what it would be like to to miss this part and work seven days a week. And I hope you feel the same. Turn to Second Peter for springboard this morning. I'm going to be reading uh, multiple verses here. And in each of these verses, you'll be able to pick out a phrase as I that are the same in these verses. First one is Second Peter one eleven. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second Peter two twenty. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Second Peter 3.2 That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And then Second Peter 3.18 But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. <clears throat> I'm sure you picked out the phrase I'm talking about. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that Peter used there. And as I, I did a word search, phrase search, and Peter's the only one that I found in Second Peter that used these names in this order. Um... I think I've seen in our, our clean some verses either Richard or Clean read where Paul used it at the end. Uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. But Peter was the only one that, that, uh, phrased it in this way. Is there a reason? And I, I think there was, and I'll get into that a little later. But when Jesus asked his disciples who they say that he is, who was the person that boldly confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was Peter. Who was it when Jesus was trying to prepare the disciples for what was going to take place, that he was going to be killed, and he said he would be ready to die with him. And this was Peter again. And Jesus turned to him and said, Before the rooster crows in the morning, you would deny me three times. I think Peter had experienced personally that the spirit was indeed willing but the flesh is weak turn back to 2 Peter 2 read verse 1 but there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. See, Peter had a uh, 
a concern about these false prophets that were among them then. And he he says it in a way that it's going to be something that's going to be among you. It's going to be an ongoing thing that there will be false prophets among you. He says, this you will always have. And I'm not going to read all the verses. I'm going to pick up again in verse 17. But if you would read down through there, it, it, it addresses multiple things. But there's there's one thing that stood out to me and what we're going to zone in on, and that was he seemed to be talking to people that had known the ways of God and have been deceived and walked away from it. Uh, one was false prophets, the uh, angels that fell, and Balaam. I'm going to pick up at 17 and read through 22. These are walls without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it has been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed her her wallowing in the mire. So at the beginning of those verses, 17, we, we have a picture of a well without water flowing out of it. The well is there, the form. And what do we expect coming from a well? Water gushing out. You may hear the right things from a, a person's mouth, but there's no fruit to support that talk. And he refers to clouds, again, having the form, but having no power in itself, but is carried about by the wind, the tempest. Then he goes on, verse 18, they go after young, per, young Christians, those who have just come clean with great swelling words of vanity. 19, they promise liberty when they themselves are servants to corruption. They're actually living in bondage when they're proclaiming or trying to teach these young Christians about liberty. And then verse 20, our key verse, those that escape the pollutions of this world. And how did they escape that? It's through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it'd be better for this person to have never known the saving power of Jesus than to experience it and turn away. And the message title this morning is The Lordship of Jesus. And as I, through the Sunday school, I heard different things that were, were mentioned. Uh, the Pharisees called Jesus Master. Um, the woman called Him Lord. And which one really meant what, what they said when they gave Him that title? You think the Pharisees were actually wanting Jesus to be their master. 
Or was it the woman that called him Lord? And going back to Peter, I think he had a very good understanding of Jesus being Lord of his life. And I had the question if he maybe prided himself in the in answering Jesus correctly when he was asked the disciples who they think he was. In Matthew sixteen six, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus affirmed his answer, did he lift himself above the other disciples? But then at Jesus' trial, when he was faced with being associated with Jesus, which could possibly mean arrest or death himself, he denied his Savior. He was not ready to name Jesus as his king, to be known to be from a different kingdom. The definition of Lord is king, one having supreme authority, Master, and who is your master? Who is your commander-in-chief this morning? And this message came from the last uh, instruction class that I taught. And it was just, I think, just two sentences or two questions on other names for Jesus. And it brought out this Lord and it gave these, these definitions that I just gave you. A king. One having authority, a master, and that's what I want to look at this morning. What does that look like? <clears throat> a little while back, I worked through a, a sermon series on God's plan of salvation, and this this is a foundation of understanding our need of a savior, and and He is our savior. You know, through repentance and accepting that blood, we escape the pollutions of the world, as Peter said there in the verses that I read. But I find it interesting how Peter calls Jesus his Lord before he called him his Savior. And I, I, I feel like it may have something to do with his experience that he had. <clears throat> and Peter had this concern for those around him when he wrote this letter, and for us today, that when we receive Jesus as our Savior, we do not stop there. You know, this is only the beginning of a long sanctification process that lasts a lifetime. And I think Peter intentionally put these words in the order that he did. Your salvation, my salvation, is the seal to becoming part of a kingdom where Jesus is a king. And we do not have a choice in this. We cannot claim his salvation and not accept his lordship. The Old Testament was very clear on a king that was coming. Zechariah 9.9 It says, Thy king cometh unto thee, he is just, and having salvation, lowly riding on an ass, and upon a colt, the fall of an ass. In Zechariah 14.9 and the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day shall sure, there will be one Lord, and his name one. And the wise men, they weren't confused as the religious people at that time, <clears throat> saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and are come to worship him. They understood him, that he was coming as a king. And is it possible for us today to find salvation through Jesus, but not accept, 
the lordship over us. And again, Peter seemed concerned about this. And he said there were false prophets and teachers among them at that time. And this was the first generation church. I found that interesting. This is the the first generation and he's already teaching against the false teachers in the in the early church. We see a battle between two kingdoms even before Peter's death and he died a martyr. I just found that that interesting as I as I studied that passage. And there were already those going around after the young Christians that have found salvation and promising them liberty when they were servants of corruption. They were living themselves living in bondage. And how often do we see this happen? When those experience freedom, young Christians, and are told that this freedom does, is not under any authority but to follow the Spirit. And these people may not realize it, but they could be setting up these young people, these young Christians, to deny the Lordship of Jesus himself. Does the thought of a king, a master over us, cause us to recoil or pull away or proclaim and teach salvation is enough? I'd like to make uh, several points as we consider the lordship of the kingdom of Jesus. And number one is the upside down kingdom. You can go to Luke 22. I get a little nervous when I speak into this. The last time I referred to this when I preached somewhere else. Two people after the service asked me if I read David Purcell's book on the Upside Down Kingdom, and I have not. And they didn't tell me if I was off on my thinking or not. But I think we can we can learn from this. <clears throat> Luke twenty two twenty four to twenty seven. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. The disciples thought they knew what type of kingdom Jesus was here to set up. And they were okay with him being this king. But the kingdoms they were familiar with were made up of a tier of officers that held a position and status next to the king. And as I thought of that, I thought of a, the picture of a, this pyramid. 
We have a king. And then we have the possessions directly under him. And then under them and under them. And you get down to the common people. And they were arguing on which one of them was going to be the person or persons that would be at the top of this pyramid next to Jesus. And who was going to be unfortunate enough to fall below that to a lower status. The next layer. You know, as long as they could get to the top layer or two, what happened below them, it didn't really matter. They were totally self-focused in their motives. And Jesus starts out in verse 25 giving them an example of how their minds were, were thinking, how they were, what they, the way they were process, their thoughts were processing. They were looking at the Gentiles and how their kings exercised lordship and authority over them. And he called them benefactors. And these were not necessarily bad people. But he wanted them to see that their motives were wrong. These rulers and the kings and others of uh, maybe in, in higher positions were doing these generous acts and sponsoring games in the arenas. These these acts of good things were not necessarily bad in themselves, but they were go- they were done to uh, gain public pop- popularity. If you could do something great, something that was very uh, meaningful to the to the public, to the people, there's a possibility you could get your picture and inscription on their coins. So the deeds that they were doing were to promote self. It was it was not so much about the actual deeds and how it was helping the people. And then Jesus went on, but you should not be this way. He that is greater or older should become as one that is younger, and he that is chief as one that does serve. And the the thought of the greater here is would be older and chief would, would be a definition of a leader. But it, it's not, it's not so much the, maybe the, or church leaders or, or leaders in general, but I wonder if it, it, it's more, uh, possibly more important that it's those that are maturing Christians that we should not be lording over, but coming down to the level of the younger Christians and serving them, instructing, listening, guiding, not lording over as one having authority. And then he poses the question with the obvious answer, who is greater? The one sitting at the table being served or the one serving him? And the obvious answer is the one sitting at the table. And here's where I think Jesus' words took the disciples for a whirl. And probably went right over their heads until later when they could see the complete picture of his kingdom. He told them, but I am among you as he who serveth. The disciples' argument came to an abrupt end. Remember, they were arguing who was going to be the greatest, who was going to be at the top of that pyramid with Jesus. Their king, the one they were holding up, 
told them if they wanted a position directly beneath in his kingdom, beneath him, it just told them that if they wanted that position, they would need to learn the importance of serving and be the one serving those at the table. This is where we get the picture of an upside-down kingdom. There's no other earthly kingdom or government that operates in this way. I do find it interesting that the United States, when they were setting up their government, was done on Christian values, with serving being an important part of it. If you were elected into the House or Senate, into a position of the government, you were expected to serve those who trusted you to hold this position. It was not about your own agenda, but about the concerns of those that elected you to serve. And I'm not sure if this is the best illustration for an upside-down kingdom that we are a part of. But if we if we flip that around with Jesus still on the point but at the bottom gives us the picture of serving is never self-focused but it's focused on others during Jesus ministry through his actions his teaching he gave us many examples of what serving looks like our king took a towel and washed his disciples feet our king went out of his way to help those who were outcasts in society. Our king sat down to eat with sinners. Our king had compassion on many, many people. When a person finds salvation in Jesus and recognizes what he was saved from, the heart begins to overflow with gratitude and humility that God would reach down to someone like me and we desire to follow our king and we turn and we humbly put ourselves under others and begin to serve them we begin to wash others feet if you see the 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 picture that I'm trying to illustrate here some practical things to consider and some of this may be material for another sermon but husbands Are you serving your wife or are you lording over? Fathers, are you serving your family, your children, or are you lording over them? Do you see the difference? Serving is to come down to their level and to lead, to help, to give what they need at the moment and to help them. We are motivated by our king and what he did for me and not to gain public attention to ourselves, but because we want more people to be part and experience the life in this kingdom. And as a result, this pyramid keeps expanding. 
as we serve and add more and more people to this kingdom. Not because of a tyrant king, but because the people of his kingdom are motivated by their king. I'm not going to read it, but there's many other verses where Jesus talks about serving. Matthew 20, 26-28, and I'm not going to turn there today. But that is the message that he preached over and over. Number two, two kings, two kingdoms. And I know I preached on kingdom messages before, but there's really no way to talk about a king without including his kingdom. And I guess I, as I thought over it again, and you think about the two kingdoms, am I truly convinced that there's only two kingdoms? You know, we are so earthly that we, we have these things that we do and we're part of that it almost feels like we are part of both kingdoms with, by default. But when you, when you take it to the spiritual picture, there is only two and we can only be in one of them. One is coming under the authority of Jesus. The other is coming under the authority of anything other than Jesus. So I didn't say coming under the authority of Satan, but anything other than Jesus. There's the possibility of being convicted of things in my life and I turn to Jesus, finding salvation through him, cleaning out all the garbage that is there, but do not come under his lordship. Do not fill it with the fruits of the Spirit And those bad spirits will return. Turn with me to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 43 to 45. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. I don't think anybody here this morning would say you're controlled by an evil spirit. But I think there's one spirit that we need to watch, and it's the spirit of self. Self is something I think we deal with. And if we don't bring it under subjection of the lordship of Jesus, it will pop up again and again. It is it is part of our human nature. Self is will always be there. It's something we'll always deal with. And as we we wrestle with self in the old life, rather than surrendering it to the authority of Jesus, if we're not careful, we begin to, there's a possibility of beginning to twist the scriptures to our own destruction. And self does not have part in Jesus' kingdom. A quote I found, a person's heart will never remain empty. 
but will either be filled with the Holy Spirit or reoccupied by the same spirits from before. And back to 2 Peter 2.20 and 21. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And where do these holy commandments come from? Again, they come from our King through His Word and through His Holy Spirit. Dean Taylor wrote the book, A Change of Allegiance. Many of you may have read that, but when they were in the American army, their allegiance was to America. And their commander-in-chief was the president at that time. But when they learned that Jesus required, what Jesus required of them to be part of his kingdom, they realized that they needed to have a complete change of allegiance. And this is one of the best illustrations of what we mean by the two kingdom concept. They couldn't continue doing what the, the commander of the army wanted them to do and what Jesus asked them to do. They couldn't love their enemies and go out and kill them. They couldn't have one foot in each camp. It just wasn't possible. And this is the, this is the thought that I'd like to, for us to get. Even though we're, we're all earthly, we're here. And we can't avoid the things that surround us here. But spiritually, it is, it is not possible to have a foot in each camp. How do we come under the Lordship of Jesus? Learning to know our Master. How did He live? How does He want us to live? And two, allowing His knowledge to change us. You know, we can have all the knowledge, but if we don't allow it to change us, we're the same as that well that we looked at in Second Peter with no water, a cloud that, that's moved about with the wind. There's no stability there. It could also end up, like here in Matthew, where the room that is swept clean, if we don't fill it with his kingship, we could be taken back into bondage. <clears throat> Number three, loyalty to the king and the kingdom. What do we mean by loyalty? It's a strong feeling or support or allegiance. And allegiance is a a loyalty or a commitment of a subordinate or a superior of an, or of an individual to a group or a cause. This is not a haphazard support. Not only when I feel like it type of thing. Only when it's convenient. And sometimes I think the the world maybe has this figured out better than what we do. If you look at what Dean Taylor in the the uh, the way the armies and the kingdoms work in this world, there is a commitment, there is an allegiance that keeps them together as a group. 
in serving. Now there are those things we enjoy. We will do anything not to miss them. What is my commitment like to my king and what he wants from me? March 5th, 1974, 2nd Lieutenant Hiro Anada, a Japanese soldier in World War II, walked out of the jungle and surrendered his rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, and several hand grenades. He was the longest known holdout of the war. He spent 29 years in a remote jungle in the islands in the Philippines. And another man by the name of Shoiki Yokoi, also a Japanese soldier, held out 27 years in the jungle till he was overpowered by two fishermen because of his weakened state. Why would these two men spend most of their lives in the jungle avoiding people? They were told by their superiors by their commander and chief, it's better for them to give their lives for their country than be taken as a prisoner of war. And even though people left newspaper clippings laying out there for them to find that reported that the war was over, they wouldn't trust that information. This was very possible that this was enemy propaganda. They were 100% loyal and committed to their authority, the emperor or the president at that time. There's a, there's a man that befriended Lieutenant Hero and tried to convince him that the war was over for 20 some years already. But he would not surrender. He said that he would not until he heard it straight from a source that he trusted. So his friend contacted a former general and scheduled a time for him to be at a certain place where he could hear the words from his general's mouth that he should surrender, that the war was over. And when he heard these words, he walked out of the jungle and handed his battle items to his general, and the fight was over. This is what commitment and loyalty look like. Becoming part of Jesus' kingdom is a lifelong commitment. We will only take our cues, our orders, from our commander, our king, and other information be discarded as untrustworthy. And I, you can only take that so far because we teach publicly, preach. But ultimately, everything got to be tried with our king holding truth to his words. We will not surrender till we hear the words from our general. Well done, good and faithful servant. <clears throat> Number four, a kingdom not divided. I'd like to bring this a little closer home. These two men were part of a, a same kingdom, but not the same regiment of soldiers. But they took their orders from the same Commander, and our individual churches are a lot the same way. 
And this is why one reason we allow others to come and teach here. We have our Bible school where there's teachers come together from various parts of America and teach. We're all part of that the same kingdom. And this kingdom will never be divided. So why do we see so many Christians parting ways? And I know there's, at times, there's, there's falling away, but how often is it because we struggle with the same things that the disciples were? And we're not taking our orders from our commander, but are following selfish motives. I'd like to read a few verses from Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. The picture of this one kingdom. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is a picture of a strong kingdom. We see the attributes of the king in verse 2. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. If we learn these things, if we use them in the way we relate to others, back to the upside-down pyramid, as we serve, as we walk beside, as we assist and help, it will strengthen and build the kingdom and it will keep expanding the upside down pyramid as more and more are added to this kingdom. And it happens as we serve others and put their interests before our own. Jesus said in Luke eleven seventeen, every kingdom Divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. Christ will never be divided. There's always that possibility of fragments of his kingdom that fall away and join up with another king. And I think we can keep learning from these, our Japanese friends and military personnel in general. They are trained to not let anyone behind. And they are trained to watch out for and protect each other to the end. Now both of these men were part of large groups that went over to these islands in the Philippines to fight. Some lost their lives fighting. Others died in the jungle over the next number of years. But there was also those that surrendered. It looked like an easy way out. And for soldiers, it is very dangerous when some of their group is not all in or maybe don't like their general for the things required of them. An undercurrent like this will weaken and possibly destroy the entire group. And it is the same for a church. Are you all in? And are you taking your cues from the king? Are we watching out for each other? Do we care enough about our brother or sister that we will give our lives for them? 
Maybe not physically, but our time and our resources to serve and to save someone that might be in danger of surrendering or throwing in the towel. Number five, the victor's crown. We shall receive a crown. When these two men returned to Japan, they received a hero's welcome. They had stood for their country to the end. But what I found interesting was it was specifically noted that the older people held them up as heroes and the young people thought that they were just plain silly. Why would you spend 29 years in a jungle wasting your life? And I had to ask the question, will these young people serve their country in the same way that these two men did? And the obvious answer is probably not. Commitment is not viewed the same as it once was, and I think it shows up in all areas of life, including Christians' commitment to Jesus' kingdom. In the last few days, I was thinking a lot about the difference between these two generations. What changed that these two men would hold out in the jungle for almost 30 years and the young people that laughed at them. What happened? <clears throat> and these men were called over an in, to fight in an intense time for that kingdom. And they made an allegiance with their country with that they were not going to break. And the next generation would have not had World War II going on and their commitment to their country was probably a lot less than the previous one. And then their children was probably even less. And I would suggest that the allegiance to their country was probably almost non-existence. And they became self-focused like we see today. What is in it for me? What can What can this kingdom or this government do for me? And it was, it was sobering to me to think that my level of commitment now to the things pertaining to this kingdom that I say I'm part of could very likely be my children's highest level of commitment. Think about that. What am I willing to give to the kingdom? The time I'm willing to sacrifice for the kingdom. How I view attending church functions and taking part in kingdom work could be shaping the commitment of my children in the next generation. And I think it's safe to say we will always fall to what we decide is our lowest level of commitment to anything, not our highest. Highest commitment is always all in. But we tend to make build this, set our own level of commitment that we will not go under. And if we keep taking that and our children adopting that, how long would it take till we have a self-focused generation instead of a kingdom-focused 
generation. Young people, listen to what the older ones have to tell you. You know, they may not be up in the latest things that are happening, but they most likely are more aware of the dangers that threaten Jesus' kingdom. Back to the crown that I <clears throat> mentioned, James 1.12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Second Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. You know, we can view this crown as something we receive at the end of life if we have held out faithful. But I had to wonder, if we can't experience this crown of life or this crown of righteousness now, we could become very discouraged till God calls us home. The Greek translation for this word crown in the New Testament is the same word that is used in the Gospels for the crown that Jesus wore at his trial and his crucifixion. It is not a crown of <clears throat> royalty, of gems and precious materials, but it has a thought more of a, a, a garland crown, one that is woven together with, with natural things, like flowers, uh, wreaths, and go back to Jesus' crown. It was woven together with these thorns. And it's also known as the victory crown. As we endure temptation, Jesus said we will receive a crown of life. And Revelation 3.11 says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. <clears throat> I think we can possess this crown already in this life. I think this crown is, of righteousness is woven together with each victory that we have. You know, it may have some thorns that hurt, like as Jesus' crown did. It may have beautiful flowers from those moments of joy all woven together. But this has nothing to do with ourselves and our own motives, but it is the way that we respond to temptations and situations that we face, that we can experience this abundant life now. And we can ex experience his righteousness now. And it's not our own, but it's Jesus' righteousness that controls us. And we take on us his righteousness and become like him. In closing, turn with me to Revelations 4. one aspect of the upside down pyramid that doesn't hold and that is the praise and worship of those in the kingdom that does not go down through the people to get to Jesus but goes directly up to Jesus who is no longer in this physical kingdom but is sitting next to his father waiting and interceding for us
as this upside-down kingdom keeps expanding. I want you to see what happens when these 24 elders fell down and worshiped Jesus. And as I as I read this, this word crown is still the same crown that Jesus wore, the same reference, <clears throat> same definition. I'm going to read Revelations 2 to 4 and then 9 to 11. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiments, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Drop down to nine. <clears throat> and when these, and when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things for thy pleasure. And they are and were created. <clears throat> what happened when we come into the presence of Jesus? I think we will do the same thing that these 24 elders did. When we come into his presence, we will cast our crown before him. This crown of life, this crown of righteousness, we receive will be cast before the one that made it possible for us to receive it. We will not be able to stand before him and flaunt our crown, but we will bow and worship. God bless you as you serve in your Lord's kingdom. Let's kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word, for your